You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, as part of our Race in America series, I'm delighted to be joined by best-selling author Angeline Bully. She's got a new book out titled Warrior Girl Unearthed. Angeline, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Oh, miigwech. I'm very thankful to be here. <laughs> We're pleased to have you. So let's start with this new book. It's set 10 years after your bestseller, Firekeeper's Daughter. And uh, you said, I think, that the main character was based on Lara Croft from Tomb Raider. Tell me about her. Tell me about that main character and how she came to be. Sure. Uh, 16-year-old Perry, Firekeeper Birch, who... Readers met her uh, when she was a six-year-old twin and a niece of Donna's, the main character and Firekeeper's daughter. And the story really came to me. Perry popped into my head. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, out for a walk, wondering if I had another story in me for my second book. And she just popped into my head and said, I stole everything they think they did and even stuff they don't know about yet. And I thought, who is this person and what's going on? And so sure enough, she um, I ran into the nearest business and grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and I just started writing. Uh, and yeah, she was sitting in a police station waiting for her parents to pick her up. And, um, and she's covered in blood. And she's wondering, how did it come to this? And I knew she was the like a reverse Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Instead of raiding tombs, that she would be raiding museums to retrieve stolen ancestors and sacred items and bring them back home. And being 16 years old, none of her heists go the way that she intends. <laughs> so she really took life on this Washington street. And that brings me to some of the, the big issues you deal with here. I mean, it's a work of fiction, but you bring up native repatriation and the crisis over missing and murdered indigenous women. Tell me about the importance of those very key issues to a work of fiction. Well, they're linked. I mean, the ownership of indigenous bodies, uh, past and present. And I really looked to connect them through this story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, indigenous women face the highest rates of um, violence, including sexual violence. And um, and then, too, the uh, you know, there are so many of our ancestors that are in museum collections and uh and just the even though there's that federal law that says you need to return these so many too many museums and institutions just drag their feet and it's all about control over indigenous bodies indigenous knowledge um and yeah I, I consider it connected through the trafficking of indigenous women, which let's be honest, it's happened since 1492. Right. So this book allows you really to reconnect with your roots, your heritage in the Ojibwe community. Did you learn anything that surprised you as you did research for the book? 
I was surprised to find out that 33 years after the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which began in 1990, uh, the Congressional Budget Office had predicted that it would take 10 years to uh, repatriate all of the ancestral remains uh, back to tribes that were requesting them. And as of September 2022, there were still more than half that were remaining in institutions than had been repatriated. There's like 108 thousand sets of remains, and um, they need to be returned back. So, Angeline, did the foot that you have or had in Washington, D.C., help you with that research for a work of fiction? It did. I mean, being, you know, when I lived in Washington, D.C., having access to people, subject matter experts, and being able to discuss, you know, different topics and this source leads to this source. That was really convenient. But a lot of the research for my second book was done uh, after I had left Washington, D.C. and and really reconnected a lot with people in Michigan who are are, are doing repatriation work. Well, let, let's go back to, to your early work. You did day jobs in the tribe when you were growing up. What was that like and what kind of jobs were you doing? Well, uh, I was raised downstate Michigan, and so my dad's, you know, our tribe is in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. So we would spend time every summer, uh, you know, spending time with grandparents and cousins. Uh, But it wasn't until I was an adult, married with three children, working for my tribe that I lived and worked uh, in Sault Ste. Marie. So, you know, that was just a really great place uh, to be and you know, I loved getting close with my cousins and spending time with elders, and it really informed the stories that I write. You've said that the power of fiction has allowed you to reach more people than ever before, and you've had these key jobs in education and other things. Tell me about that power of fiction, how you've harnessed it, and whether it also surprised you in its ability to reach people. I wasn't surprised because story is how we learn what it means to be Anishinaabe, how we learn to be human. And, um, you know, I was, I feel like I could give a lecture about repatriations, but who is it really going to reach? But a story and characters that you care about, um, you know, them experiencing the frustration of trying to repatriate with, you know, universities and museums and institutions that are just uh, determined to hold on to uh, ancestral remains and, more importantly to them, the sacred items, the funerary items that they were buried with. That's what they truly want to hold on to. And as long as they can classify remains as culturally unaffiliated, um, they get to hold on to those items. So, Angeline, I'm so intrigued by this personal experience and your ability to tell stories and also your experience in education. And what do you think teachers and educators need to learn to do in order to understand better uh, Indigenous people, but more broadly, a diversity of people and the complex cultures we are part of? I feel like if the only time a teacher brings up Native Americans is during the month of November, uh, that's not. (laughs) But I understand teachers being 
um, leery and unsure of how to uh, bring up or in, include Native peoples in curriculum uh, beyond Thanksgiving. And thankfully, there are some really great resources out there. Uh, Debbie Reese's uh, blog, it's called American Indians in Children's Literature. And mm-hmm. she does like a best of list every year for picture books, uh, chapter books, middle, gra- middle grade, young adult, graphic novel, and adult. And and she really breaks down how she um, analyzes books to determine if this is um, appropriate representation or if it uh, perpetuates stereotypes. And so that's a free resource available to teachers. I also commend states like uh, Montana. Michigan has really come come a long way too in uh, doing like Indian education for all, where it's not just improving public schools for Native American children, but it's um, educating every student about Native Americans and and emphasizing the connection with local tribes and local communities. We also have some very prominent figures in government now, including Deb Haaland, um, Secretary of the Interior. Do they make a difference as role models in how people perceive Native communities? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Secretary Howland is one of my role models. And um, I remember when she was first elected as a representative from New Mexico and uh, her and Sharice Davids, uh, that they... Uh, uh, Deb Holland had saved her seat in um, Congress uh, with a blanket, and it was like, how in how native how native is that? And she, you know, had replied back on social media, like, "Yep, absolutely, I did that, saving her seat by putting a blanket over the the seat." Um, you know, and she's just taken such a leadership role and so many issues with the Department of Interior that impact. Um, Native peoples, Native rights, uh, Native communities. And um, these are items that have long been given lip service. And I feel like she's the first secretary that has actually um, committed uh, to do more than ever before. Your first book, Firekeeper's Daughter has been made into a Netflix series through the Obama's uh, production company. And I think it's been held up uh, in the writer's strike. But can you tell us a little bit about that series and the process of changing your work of fiction into a a Netflix series? Sure. Uh, A few weeks after my book deal, Hollywood came calling. And I was able to talk with several different uh, development companies that were interested in adapting Firekeeper's Daughter for the big screen or for series and really higher ground productions, uh, which was started by President Barack and Michelle Obama. Um, you know, I just loved how we both viewed representation as such a core value and that, um, you know, my wish was to see native creative talent, not just in front of the camera, but behind it in the writer's room and at every level of production. And they were completely on board with that. And um, so uh, what I know of right now is that there is a head writer and a showrunner 
who produced a or who wrote a script that Netflix and uh, Higher Ground loves. But um, in support of the writer strike, all of that has come to a halt. And I stand with the uh, Writers Guild of America to, um, you know, support writers. And have you, you mentioned that you wanted to have uh, screen on everybody from as many as people as possible in the production who were from native communities. Has that also happened or is that happening? I, I believe so. I'm making my suggestions of people that, um, you know, that I know of and that do excellent work and, and forwarding those names. But Higher Ground is very savvy and, and they're already tuned into networks of native screenwriters and directors and, you know, people throughout production. So let's talk a minute about the Cannes Film Festival, where a Martin Scorsese, Scorsese film that focuses on indigenous populations got, I think, a nine-minute standing ovation. What does it mean to you to see that kind of recognition of art um, in all sorts of different kinds that really grows out of and belongs to Native communities? It means the world. And, you know, it's based on... Uh, an incredible book, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, by David Brand, I believe. And that book focuses on the birth of the FBI. Um, and I'm very glad that um, Osage leadership said, you know, the focus is on Osage, uh, you know, community members and what happened. And, and it resulted in, I believe, a rewrite and a refocusing. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio learned to, you know, speak the native language. And I think that's what happens when you make a commitment to tell stories from a group that had not had their story told from their perspective. And um, I, I think it results in art that transcends a movie, it actually, I believe, says something about um, story sovereignty and the right we have to tell our own stories. And um, I'm, I'm, I cannot wait to see the the movie. And I certainly, you know, Lily Gladstone, if she could play, if she could be cast as Aunt Teddy in Firekeeper's Daughter, I, I would be the happiest Nishque in the world. <laughs> but tell us also how important it is to history to have these works of popular popular movies and, and works of fiction out there. Because the past and the present are connected. If we lose sight of what happened in the past and the struggles that our ancestors made for us, then not only are we uh, likely to repeat, um, but they gave up so much for us and to not live our fullest, best lives, um, honoring their sacrifice, I think is an injustice that the present does to the past. Angeline, we've had a, a, a several uh, reader questions and um, that I'd like to bring in now. The first one touches on one of those huge cultural issues. Um, it comes from Deb Clark in Texas. And as I said, I think we could probably talk for an hour around this topic, but let's see what Deb says and um, see what you have to say. Deb says, are you okay with non-native communicators and educators doing research about issues that face indigenous communities? 
Absolutely, yes. Um, I highly encourage non-Native educators to do research. My um, best guidance for them is to carefully consider their sources and to make sure that the sources that they are reading and referencing are um, Indigenous, that they're writing and speaking to lived experience, and that the author um, of whether it's fiction or nonfiction, uh, that they are claimed by a community and not just claiming Native identity. So tell me a little bit more about how, you, how somebody coming in can make that distinction, being claimed by a community and not just claiming Native identity. I think that what's um, important is to look research the, the sources and to you know read their biography and uh, find out where they come from, uh, where they were educated, um, you know, if they reference cultural teachers um, and and the way of speaking about community, um, I think there's kind of a shorthand language about knowing someone um, that someone truly has that connection. So we have another question I want to ask, and this one comes from Barbara White in Minnesota. And Barbara asks, very different kind of question. I love a good mystery, including Firekeeper's Daughter. Who are some of your favorite mystery authors? What a great question. Yes. So um, I love everything that Marcy Rendon writes. She is an Ojibwe author from White Earth, and I believe she's the most underrated indigenous author out there. And she has this Cash Black Bear mystery series that I absolutely adore. And um, I also love, uh, of course, you know, Louise Erdrich. I love uh, Lucy Foley, Tess Sharp in Young Adult. Um, uh, you know, the, I tend to go more towards psychological thrillers. And uh, so, yeah, just... Um, Tommy Orange, David Hesco, Wombly Waden, Stephen Graham Jones. I mean, he he veered <laughs> mystery so horror. And uh, I actually met him. We were on a panel together in Paris at a um, international literary festival. And I fangled so hard. I was tongue tied and I finally sputtered <laughs> out. I really like your books. And I just felt like the most... Uh, incompetent human at that point. But actually, right at the beginning, you mentioned to me the importance of characters in telling these stories. And so what do you do? You dive into these books before you write your own book? Or are you um, starting from a kind of blank slate? You talked about your your character talking to you as you walk down a Washington street. But where does it begin? Through other mysteries or through your own imagination? Through my imagination and you know, people I've met, people, uh, you know, familiar faces in my community, uh, just, you know, drawing inspiration are all around me, but then making the character mine. And, um, you know, I even think about like what music they listen to. And, you know, I feel like if I know what, what songs they listen to, I feel like I have insight into them. Uh, it's all just part of this creative process to create um, layered, nuanced characters that represent a full range of 
you know, humans that we encounter on our reservations and in our tribal communities every day. Angeline, I have read that you wanted to write a book or that had the idea about writing a book when you were a teenager and you didn't write until you were 44. What advice would you give your former self or to other young people who have that idea about writing a book? What advice <laughs> would you give your former self? Hold on to that spark of, you know, that creative idea that just won't let you go. Hold on to it, listen to it, nurture it, and um, see what happens. I am the poster child for tenacity and for wonderful things happening uh, after age 40. Uh, but yes, I had the idea at 18. And I think if I had tried to write Firekeeper's Daughter at 18, it would have been um, a very smushy romance novel. And that's not <laughs> what the story warranted. It, but yeah. So I'm thinking more broadly, we're at this moment of incredible polarization in this country. And you're writing a book that, in a sense, introduces people to a culture they may not be familiar with. It's a bridge building book. How much do you see fiction narrative as a means of overcoming these great divides? Story is how we tap into our humanity. Um, you know, James Joyce is quoted with, you know, in the particular, we find the universal. And when we um, censor or hold back those particular voices, we, you know, the we lose that opportunity to see the universality in all people. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful that I wrote a story that was so specific about my community and this one Ojibwe girl, but the people outside of my community who, you know, the story resonated with. And, and so I just think there are people out there whose stories have not been told and now is not the time to um, squelch those. Now is the time we need to amplify diverse stories from underrepresented voices. Angeline, I, I'd like to finish with a, a question that's very dear to my own heart. A magazine story I uh, edited early on in my career was about the death of native languages, the loss of native language. How does that affect storytelling? Well, our native languages, it's more than just uh, words, it's a world. It's, um, you know, how, how we view the world. And, um, and, and so I think that efforts to revitalize, uh, native languages, um, you know, I, I certainly think there should be more funding towards that, um, and more encouragement of that. And there are more resources now than ever before, for example, free resources, my tribe in particular does a free um, online class for beginners. Uh, you know, Bay Mills Community College in Brimley, Michigan, uh, they they have an immersion institute to, to learn Anishinaabe Moen. And um, I believe Dr. Anton Troyer was um, instrumental in uh, Rosetta Stone coming out with a version of, you know, Anishinaabe, Ojibwe Moen. And, and so I think it's people who love language and know how vitally important it is using different, um, using technology to increase access 
um, to people wherever they may be. Angeline Bully, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you. We look forward to not only learning more about Warrior Girl Unearth, but to the next book too. Ah, uh, miigwech. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.